Bill Vantuono is with me today uh, from Railway Age magazine. He has been there since 1992. And of course, like many magazines, they have changed over the years. Uh, He has added coverage of technological revolutions within rail, as well as a lot of other things. He was given to me as a source by the folks at CSX because we had a lot of questions about what happened at East Palestine. Bill, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, my pleasure, Martha. I've been I've been listening uh, to your program in preparation, and uh, it's uh, you're. I have to say, you're very balanced, and uh, it's something that, uh, as a fellow journalist, I, I really appreciate. But I'm 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 here to help. I'm, well, I'm here to provide you. as much information as I can. Thank you very much. Listen, first of all, a lot of people, and the number one question I've been getting from my listeners over the last three weeks is how does a train derail? And I know that seems like a simple question, but how does a, cha- a train derail, or do we know how this train derailed? Well, uh, a derailment can occur from a defect in the track or a defect on the vehicle, on the rail car. For example, uh, a broken wheel, uh, an overheated roller bearing, a uh, broken axle, okay? This uh, uh, this particular derailment, uh, as as the NTSB uh, accurately reported yesterday, in its preliminary report, was a uh, a bearing, a roller bearing on on one of the cars. I think it was the 23rd car in the consist, uh, overheated and and caused an axle an axle failure. Uh, that that co- that caused the the derailment. That's the that's the simple uh, explanation. Very basic. So about four or five days into this, I got a call from a listener saying, "Have you heard anything about this this train derailment?" And quite frankly, I really hadn't. Um, uh, and I stay pretty much on top of things, but I think there was a little bit of a slow to response for a number of reasons. It might have been the location. It might have been who knows what it is. A lot of times if things are outside of major major TV markets, they're slow to get uh, coverage, and maybe that was part of it. But uh, I, I watched with interest the next day when uh, Governor DeWine had his first press conference, and it was a very long one. It was a couple hours long, and uh, he was explaining the idea of – uh, how they were going to get rid of the hazardous materials, and they had a choice between two bad choices. And then he said something about um, that they weren't notified that there were hazardous materials and that there was some kind of criteria of how much hazardous materials had to be on trains in order for it to be notified. Can you kind of explain that, how that works? How is it that trains have to notify uh, if they have hazardous material and they're traveling through someone's town? Well, you have to understand that railroads are federally regulated. Uh, as far as I know, there, there is no requirement to, uh, to notify a locality or a municipality of, of what exactly is on the train. And there are, there are various reasons for that, security reasons, uh, uh, so on and so forth. But that said, again, the, the, the industry is federally regulated, okay? Every type of car that carries any type of lading, whether it's hazardous or non-hazardous, uh, is, is clearly identified. It's, it's clearly, clearly regulated. For example, the ta- any, any tank car that's carrying hazmat has to be placarded, okay? There's, there's a, 
there's like a sign in simple terms. There's a sign that looks like a like a uh, a triangle or a, or something like that 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 shows like the old nuclear what, like the old uh, exactly. nuclear fallout shelter signals. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And and the tie and there are various classes of hazardous materials. There's um, uh, there's three packing groups: packing group one, packing group two, packing group three. And 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 in addition to that, there are there's classifications for uh, what's what's called an H uh, high, HAFT, a high hazard. So many acronyms, geez. Yeah. <laughs> a high hazard flammable train that is really for crude oil and ethanol. Okay, um, so uh, that that's again that's that's a basic uh, explanation. But you know the railroads know exactly what's uh, what's on the what's on those cars. Um, anyway, your next question. So, um, Norfolk Southern was the railroad in this case. Um, and it, it looks to me, and I've read a number of reports, so I may have this a little bit off, but it was something like 10 cars had hazardous material and there was something like 141 cars in this particular train. And look, we live in an area, we have a, uh, inland port not too far up the road from us here that comes from the Savannah port and rail brings stuff to this inland port. There's another one over in Chatsworth, which is in about an hour and a half from here. And, and because of rail connections, our Savannah port can get goods from the port to 80% of the population of the United States within three days, you know? So, so we've got great opportunities and rail is really important moving goods from one place to another. But is Norfolk Southern going to have the resources to be able to do what they're going to have to do to clean this up? Because I think this is going to be short term and long term, and it could be very long term if it turns out there are health risks, relate health things that relate to this because of the way they disposed of the materials. Well, I, I would say Norfolk Southern does, uh, and just going directly to their to their CEO, uh, uh, Alan Shaw. Alan has Alan has been a career railroader at Norfolk Southern for 27, 28 years. Uh, I, I I know him. Uh, I I don't know him as well as some of the other CEOs I know in the industry because he's, you know, he's he's been he's relatively new at the CEO post. Okay, but he's been a part of this railroad for for 27 years, and I I can tell you he's a man of his word. Uh, he says the CEO sets the tone, and if he says that we're going to do what it takes and we're going to do what's right, uh, I, I would I would take him at his uh, at his word. Um, there's a lot, you know. This is a uh, there's a lot of things in play here, and um, you know I was listening to you before. Uh, I have my sound off, of course. I don't want any feedback. <laughs> you don't want any feedback. That's but, right. Uh, you know, listen. You know, listening to what you were saying about about you know differences in political responses. That this whole thing has been politicized. Yes. And and it shouldn't and be. That's that's it. Shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It's about it's about safety. It's about technology. It's about emergency response. It's, uh, there's a lot of things involved, but politics uh, it's it's being it's being badly twisted and there's a lot of misinformation out there unfortunately well and it shouldn't be you know i did a thing yesterday uh it was a webinar with a pastor uh gary mason and uh dr rashad ritchie and i was uh, i was doing it in my collaboration i do with the carter center because 
for some reason, I'm kind of some unusual thing being a conservative for them. But they decided a couple of years ago they needed to have some conservatives on their staff, too, at the Carter Center, that they were perceived too far as being um, a liberal a liberal organization. And so I've been helping them um, kind of understand how to communicate across the in a cross-partisan way is mm-hmm. what it's called. And so we had this uh, uh, really kind of how can faith-based people help with this kind of political divide. But really it can work with any of us, okay? Because we all, we all this should show us, we all want clean water. We all want clean air. We all want a place to work, live, and play near our, our homes. Most people will, don't want to move across country for a better job. Some people will. And so that's why you see this kind of thing. And I think there are such challenges because we have politicized everything right now. I mean, you even right. had Joy Behar yesterday on The View say that these, you know, you got what you deserved because you voted for Donald Trump. I mean, come on. That is the most no, ridiculous statement yeah. I've ever heard. It, it is. And by the way, as far as you know, when you say the Carter Center, you mean for the, uh, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter right? Center, yes. It was Jimmy Carter who in 1980, he was the president who signed the Staggers Rail Act, which, de- which largely deregulated the, the rail industry into law. Okay? It was, uh, and and it, was a, uh, it was a Democrat, uh, Jim Florio. Right. Okay, uh, I know Congressman who he is. from Camden, New Jersey. Okay, who uh, who was the architect of the Staggers Act? Even though the, even though it was uh, the name uh, Harley Staggers' name out of deference was put on the bill, but it was Jimmy Carter who deregulated the railroads. Anyway. Well, I, you know, you and I talked a little bit when we talked on the phone about passenger rail. You know, it's something that, uh, you know, is something I think about a lot. I mean, we have a very limited metro system in Atlanta. I wish we had a better one. But it is a great way. I live an hour north of Atlanta. I can drive into the farthest north train station. I can take the train all the way to the airport. And I love it. It's great because they're always doing construction at the airport. That way you don't have to park. And it's fantastic. But there was a time when you could take a train from Atlanta to Gainesville, from Atlanta to Athens, from Atlanta to Savannah or Macon or whatever. And you can't do that because they're doing freight everywhere. Um, I don't see that changing. Do you? Well, it, it could it could change and it has been changing. Uh, you have to go back to uh, to the late 1960s, actually, even before that, when when provide when the freight railroads were uh, providing passenger service at a tremendous uh cost a tremendous loss a financial loss and um the uh, the uh, and one reason why they were losing so much money was on providing passenger services is because the because uh, because the government came in back in the 50s and subsidized the, the construction of the highway system and also subsidized the uh, 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 the airports, and, and they're still paying for the, of course, for the air traffic control system. So, um, so passenger uh, passengers moved from from trains to, and also private automobiles. Uh, you know, they moved from from trains to private automobiles and airplanes. So, Amtrak was created in 1970, 1971. To not to preserve passenger service, but to uh, but to 
save or not save, but to uh, take the financial burden uh, of providing passenger service off uh, off the backs of the freight railroads. Now, in that time, uh, there, there's there's been a lot of there's been a lot of progress. Um, there are efforts to uh, to improve passenger service in various markets. I know there's been an ongoing effort in Atlanta, in the Atlanta region for a long time. What what people a lot of people don't understand is that any passenger service, okay, and I'm not talking transit like MARTA or, or streetcars or usually, I'm talking about commuter rail, uh, longer distance regional services, mainline services. Those the freight railroads uh, uh, own the infrastructure. Okay, they are more than willing to work with the passenger operators uh, to to host the trains, but the caveat is that it cannot any passenger service cannot impede upon the viability of the freight rail service, and they're absolutely correct in that. And we have examples all over the country of railroads and passenger operators working together to to get passenger service on the rails. We are talking to Bill Vantuano, and am I saying that right, Bill? It's okay? Yes. Vantuano, good. Um, and one final question. we got about a minute to go. Um, what has to happen next uh, in East Palestine? Well, the, the NTSB uh, uh, has to uh, complete its, investigation okay uh uh, the official report uh these reports take take sometimes a year or more uh but i would say that the the preliminary report is uh uh, which was issued yesterday uh is 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 quite accurate it sets the basic facts okay uh, and does that there, make Norfolk yeah. Southern responsible for the overheated bearing, or who's responsible for that? Well, you have to bear understand how, uh, how how railroads operate. Railroads do not own most of their freight cars. Okay, they are owned by uh, by the customers or leased by the customers from the car owners that buy that buy the the, the rail cars and the components from the car builders. So uh, it has to be determined, you know, there are, there are various parties. So there's more, uh, more to be determined. Th- that th- sounds there's good. more to be determined. Absolutely. You know, when, what, when did the defect start? It could have started uh, hundreds of miles away and it was too tiny to pick up. It's an unfortunate set of circumstances that, that the failure came uh, just before or, or immediately after the, uh, the, the, uh, the the final hot box detector before the derailment picked up the temperature and the train crew responded immediately. Okay. So the train crew was doing its job. Okay. Um, it's just an unfortunate set of circumstances, but uh, you know, on balance, I would say that the response to the derailment, uh, the emergency response, uh, NTSB, uh, EPA, um, you know, they, they, they did rapidly everything they could possibly do. And the presence of a politician, whether it's the Secretary of Transportation or the President of the United States, would have no bearing on on the, the speed and professionalism of the response. Bill Ventuano from Railway that. from Railway Age, thank you so much for being with me today. We'll talk again. Okay, thank you.